Let's open the Bibles to the book of Joel, J-O-E-L. We started out studying the minor prophets. We studied Hosea, and we'll study Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah, and Malachi. Those are the minor prophets. Minor only in the sense of uh, the length of them, not in the sense of the importance of them. We call them the minor prophets. There's 12 of them. And tonight we're starting a new study, and I trust that we've already enjoyed studying the book of Hosea, and uh, give you somewhat an introduction, and then also uh, what we are able to cover in the first chapter of the book of Joel. We'll read several verses before we... We'll read at least verses 1 through 4 before we uh, begin with an introduction. So I want you to notice as we read... In chapter 1 of Joel, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. Now verse 4, That which the palmer worm hath left, the locust hath eaten. And that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm hath left, hath a caterpillar. Now then, there's a whole lot of things that we need to uh, give by way of introduction to this whole book. But these first four verses will help to get us there in giving an introduction. First of all, let's look at verse 1 again. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Pethuel. And this is the, the word of Jehovah. He speaks, and he speaks to uh, Joel, and through Joel, we find that uh, he's speaking of these things that he wants the children to know, and also in verse 4, he's speaking of these very four stages of one insect. By the way, the locust is one insect here in a fourfold stage. It's a fourfold stage of only one insect. And I'll give you a meaning of the palmer worm, locust, canker worm and also the caterpillar. If you want to write some of these things down, or just a word or two to remind you of what they mean, palmer worm, now these are all taken from the fourth verse. Palmer worm, in the original, is G-A-Z-E-M. G-A-Z-E-M. And it means to gnaw off. So these things are, uh, these even in these four stages of the insect, the locust, is able to do these various things. And it means to gnaw off. And then locust, actually, the full stage, arbeth, A-R-B-E-H, arba, and it means to be many. We know that there are swarms of locusts. Uh, you remember the swarms of locusts that came in the days of uh, Moses. And uh, various times locusts have covered the land, our own land. And they say back in the uh, in uh, Utah at one time, you remember the, when the Mormons were, and their land was invaded with uh, locusts. And uh, there's various things about locusts. They've been known to to so come together that they would drive miles and miles out into the sea because they could go on top of one another. There'd be so many of them that the ones on the bottom would just be there and the others would have a, have a pathway made of the rest of them. In fact, there's a lot of uh, history about what locusts have done and the swarms of them that have come. And so it, it means to be many. The word locust. And then canker worm comes to the word J-E-L-E-K. And it means to lick off. To lick off. And caterpillar 
is C-H-A-S-E-L. comes from that word. And it means to devour or consume. So in all these various stages, one or the other would devastate the land. Let me repeat that. Locust, one insect in the fourfold stage. Palmer worm is to gnaw off. Locust is to be many. Canker worm is to lick off. And caterpillar is to devour or consume. <clears throat> now, the gnawing locust, when first hatched, then it gets its wings and flies about. And after that, it starts its uh, destructive work by whatever, whatever it finds to eat. And finally... It reaches its full growth and devours everything in front of its path. So there's a whole lot of things to consider about the destructiveness of this insect. And it's used symbolically of other agencies in the latter days. When we get over into the book of Revelation, we'll find that there's a symbolical meaning of all the destruction that comes during the tribulation period in the last days. And it's symbolical of these things. Now, let me give you another word about Joel himself. Joel means Jehovah is God. And this shows us that God is able to bring this destruction through the armies that he uh, employs to bring about destruction in certain places and for certain reasons. And we'll get into some of those reasons in this first chapter and some of the ones that destruction is brought upon. And why in verse 4, if you look at it, why the land is stripped, and how it also is related to future generations. Because if you remember verse 3, he says, you tell it to your children, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. So it's passed on from generation to generation, and actually there's a prophetic meaning in all of this too. So there's way future generations that are in view. In fact, when we get into some of the things in the heart of the book of Joel, we'll find that there's some definite prophecies of things of the days of the apostles and extending beyond the days of the apostles because it's spoken of in the book of Acts, the first uh, part of the book of Acts. And then what happened there on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is related to something that's still not completely fulfilled. Because when Peter speaks of what happened on the day of Pentecost, he says this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. But he doesn't say this is fulfilled of that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. He says this is that or this is like that. And so when we get there, you'll find that there's uh, prophecies of future things that will happen. But right now, let's confine our thoughts. I don't want to take you too fast. But let's look at verse 4 and find what happens. It says, That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath eaten, Uh, left, the caterpillar hath the caterpillar eaten. So we find that the land is stripped, that there's complete destruction because of this plague of, we'll call it the plague of locusts, even though we find the word locusts and these other stages included here in this fourth verse. But, uh, and we've given you some of the meanings of the names of each and every stage of of the locusts. You know, when you have uh, locusts that invade a land, they they just destroy everything that's before it. Regardless of what stage that uh, uh, insect may be in, there's still destructiveness to its ability. We said that one means to gnaw off, the other means to lick off, and the other means to devour or consume. In all these stages, there's a destructive force with it. And we're going to find out 
uh, some things about. Let me give you a kind of an outline of this first uh, chapter. The kind of an outline. First of all, in verses one through four, which we've already read, is not only the introduction that I've given you, but the prophet's appeal. Let's just call that the prophet's appeal. And then verses five through seven. Let me give you this. It's the call to the drunkards. The call to the drunkards. And verses 8 through 14 is the call to the people and the priests. The people and the priests. And then verses 15 through 18, the day of the Lord and the suffering land is all at one, you might say one statement. The day of the Lord, uh, semicolon, the suffering land. And when the day of the Lord comes, the land will suffer. And then verses 19, 20, the prayer of the prophet. Joel was a man of prayer. And we'll find that in verse 19 and 20. For he says in verse 19, O Lord, to thee will I cry. And, he, and we'll get there at the proper point in time in our lesson. But right now, let's drop back and see, after we've passed verse 1 through 4, we found the prophet's appeal, and his appeal was to the children and their children and their children of another generation. And then he states what has happened by the destructiveness of this insect in verse 4. So we've already basically covered that, uh, the, the prophet's appeal by the word of the Lord. Because if you look at verse 1 again, keep your eyes on the Scripture a lot. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And then it says, Hear, ye this, hear this, ye old men, and give ear to all the inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it. And let your children tell their children. And their children another generation. Notice. That which the palmer worm hath left, the locust hath eaten. That which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. So we basically covered those four verses. So we said that that was the prophet's appeal that was given by the word of the Lord. You know, God approaches each and every prophet in much the same way, and yet in, a, in somewhat a different way, because He gives each one of them, one of them, a specific purpose for their for their message. And so it is with Joel that He gives him a specific pur- purpose for his message. Now, verses we said verses five through seven then is the call to the drunkards, and in this call to the drunkards, there are several things that we want to point out. First of all, notice it says. In verse, let, let's begin reading with verse 5 through uh, 7, if you will. And we'll read it and then come back and talk about it. <clears throat> he says, Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and bark my fig tree, he hath made it clean bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. In other words, completely stripped. So, he's speaking of this destroying insect as one that comes as a lion, so to speak, or comes in his destructive power upon certain aspects of the land, and he's addressing the drunkards. The drunkards were the first to suffer. And when we think of the drunkards and how that they are, that God is justified in bringing judgment upon them. There's some references that maybe I could give you. Look in the book of Amos chapter 6, if you will. And it's right after this book, after Joel. Joel Amos chapter 6. 
and verses, uh, we'll have chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And so, Amos addresses the same group of people under divine inspiration. And he uses these words. He says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. And he says, Pass you to Calna and see, and from thence go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms? Are their borders greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory, now look, and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs of the flock and the calves in the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the vile and invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with chief ornaments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. In other words, he's describing here a party of people that are at ease and feasting always and living up this life with all of its sinful pleasures and feastings and lusts and gluttony and drinking. And he says that they have all this going for them. But he says in the last statement, I want you to notice, but they're not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. I think this may be applicable to many people today, to many churches today, to some individuals today who will say, well, I've got, you know, they're like the rich man over in Luke chapter 12 and said, I've got all that I want and, you know, I have my barns full and I'll just eat, drink and be merry. And never mind the other fellow. God help us to not be that selfish and not to be that self-centered. Help us to realize that if God has blessed us, He's blessed us so we can be a blessing. Remember I gave you that one time? I believe it concerns Abraham. Look back in the book of Genesis, if you will. Genesis chapter... See if I can get it. I believe it's chapter 12. Chapter 12 of Genesis. You know why God blesses you? So you can bless someone else. It's not for your own selfish needs and reasons that God has been a blessing to you. Notice what it says here in Genesis 12. Now, now the Lord had said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great. Now look. And thou shalt be. What a blessing. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And as a result, what? Thou shalt be a blessing. You see, God does not just bless us because He wants us individually and totally and no one else to be blessed. But He makes us a blessing that we can be a blessing to other people. Isn't that a wonderful... That's really a wonderful thought. That we... That the blessing we get is not for our selfish uh, indulgence. And we find over there in the book of Amos that these people, what Amos was talking about, woe unto those that are at ease in Zion, that sit upon these couches, that drink wine in bowls, that feast themselves day by day. Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And so, the thing about it is, we need to realize that God does not want us to be that kind of people. And so He says, woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. You know, when people get in trouble... Is when they just sit back and say, well, I'm okay, I'm not going to do a thing. That's what happened to David when he got into sin, wasn't it? The Bible says at the time that the kings went forth to battle, King David, it says, David tarried still at Jerusalem. 
And he put himself upon his bed at night and he began to toss and turn. And he was restless. And the Bible says, as the door turneth on his hinges, so did the slothful turn upon his bed. And he became restless. And what happened? He got up off his bed and he began to look. And he lusted after a woman that was taking a bath. And he lusted after her for an adulterous purpose, Bathsheba. And he took her, another man's wife, committed adultery. Then turned around and tried to have this man killed and did have him killed at the forefront of the battle. First he tried to get him drunk and he wouldn't drink. And he was an honorable man because he says, I'm not going to go down and enjoy the pleasures of home and my wife and family when all those other men are out there on the battlefield. And he refused to go. And David put him in the forefront of the battle. He sent a note by him. And this man was so honorable he didn't even open the letter. The letter was his own death warrant and he didn't open it. You see what happens to, to people when they disobey God and when they get lazy? God help us to be useful people. Someone asked me when I was going to retire. When God takes me out of here. That's when I'm going to retire. As long as I'm able. I don't know what the future holds. And two, there may be a time that he would have to, I'd have to be out because of not being able to do. But we don't know what that's going to be. But anyway, to make a long story short, we get back here to the book of Joel. The first ones, Joel chapter 1, the first ones that were hit with this judgment. Awake, ye drunkards. Verse 5. They were the ones that suffered the first ones. And weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Verse 6. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion. And he hath the cheek of teeth of a great lion. We had the symbolical meaning of the lion back in, in the book of Hosea. Remember, we pointed it out. And the various nations that were in, indicated by that symbolism. And we referred you to the book of Daniel. And the various nations that would come up against God's people, not only then in the Old Testament, but in the latter days. Now look, in verse 7, He hath laid my vine waste. Who's God's vine? Israel. And barked my fig tree. Who's a fig tree? Israel. He hath made it clean bare and cast away the branches thereof, or made white, completely stripped. How do we know that what we said about His vine? Look in Isaiah chapter 5, I believe it is, that we'll find it. Isaiah chapter 5. Look in Isaiah chapter 5. <clears throat> Begin with verse 1. And by the way, we're going to take our time in this study, the same as we've always done. If we don't get through uh, many more verses, we'll... Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Look at it. Now, now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Who's the vine? Okay. Get to it in a moment. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower to watch over in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Everything was done. God did everything for that nation. Now look. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt... Me and my vineyard. I want you to think about it, he says. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. Isn't that what he said? 
eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. There's a lot of prophetic meaning in all this, but I want to go ahead and get the point that I started to make. And I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the cloud that they rain no rain upon it. Now look, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is what? The house of Israel. And the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And behold, and he looked for judgment, and behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. So, verse 7 tells us the point I wanted to make when we left the book of Joel. It says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is what? The house of Israel. Now back to the book of Joel. Joel, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. He has laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. Actually, the fig tree is spoken of in relation to the nation as well. I don't know that I have the reference handy, but possibly so. If I do, I'll give you some things about it in the New Testament in the book of Matthew, I think, 24. Maybe I can find it. I'll see if I can find it. Yes, 24 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 32, Jesus says, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. 24.32 Matthew 24, verse 32 When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise, when you see all these things, all these things, what he has spoken of that pertain to tribulation things, not only a coming judgment upon Israel, upon the Jews in the few years after the death of Jesus. In Titus, uh, in 70 A.D., Titus came in, destroyed the city, and broke down the, tore down the temple and plowed up the whole city as a field. Okay, not only that coming judgment then, but a future judgment Jesus had been speaking about. But now let's follow on. He says, so when you see these, all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Actually, He is near. If you have a marginal reference, the word it here is He. That Christ is near, even at the doors. Verse 34, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And if I had time to expound, I would tell you that when Jesus speaks here of this generation, He's talking about this nation or this people, this generation, are Jews. Generation, a lot of times, does not speak of just a period of time, or like we say, here's three generations of a certain family. But he says they would not disappear until all of it would be fulfilled. And that's where these people get off in trying to set a date for Christ's coming. Because they start measuring out years. Instead of letting it sometimes refers to the people. A generation or nation of people. And they're still in existence today. And they will be. And then all these things will not be fulfilled till Jesus comes again and reckons with that generation or that people. So when you start adding the time that this fig tree, which is symbolical of the nation of Israel, and we'll get to that in just a moment, I'll give you that. When you start dealing with them and say, well, since 1948, right? And you start talking about generations and you set dates from that date because when the fig tree begins to uh, parable of the fig tree and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh, so likewise... Ye, when ye shall see these things, know that it is near, he is near, even at the doors. Verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass. If you made it one generation, you'd say, well, like they did back in 1988, remember? Said it has to be now. Remember all the books that were written? And all the scare that people were put through? Because some fellow figured out 40 years as a generation and said, it's going to happen now. 
because they didn't understand what God's Word is all about. And if you study the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find that it's basically uh, Jewish in background. And if you leave the Jewish uh, thought out of the book of Matthew, you're going to miss many, many points, not only what, what we're talking about now. But I wanted to get down to this fig tree business. So we have here the fig tree representing the people. Now, then, I want you to notice that the fig tree stands for uh, Israel's national life. The vine that we just gave you was a figure of Israel's uh, religious life. We just gave you that. Isaiah chapter 5. The vine is a figure of Israel's religious life. The fig tree is, stands for Israel's national life. Now, we're going to prove that, and then we'll get into... We know that there's another emblem. The olive tree stands for Israel's spiritual life. Three emblems, three symbols, botanical emblems that stand for the life of that nation. We've already shown you in Isaiah 5 how that it stands for their religious life. I'll give you all of it in just a minute. I'm not through with this yet, so just keep copying down anything you can. So, we've given you Isaiah 5 where it stands for Israel's uh, religious life. Now then, the fig tree here stands for their national life. We'll take time to prove that before we go into their spiritual life that's represented by the olive tree. So, the fig tree standing for Israel's national life instead of their uh, religious life. First Kings 4 verse 25. Here's your proof. There's a time that you'll see their national life is represented here. First Kings 4 verse 25 when there's a prediction that every man shall sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree when God, that God is predicting that uh, blessing that will come. First Kings chapter 4 did I say first or second? I said first, didn't I? In verse 25, 1 Kings 4:25, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Now, in connection with that, if I can turn back and get my references straight for you, because I didn't plan on this at all. But back in the... Matthew, I'll get another reference for you because I have some of these things jotted down. Micah 4, verse 4. Look in Micah 4, verse 4 in relation to that first Kings that I gave you. 4, verse 25. Micah. And I'll try to find it. I said chapter 4 and verse 4. And it's a promise and a, and a uh, prophecy of their future. It says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. And you have to get the whole context here in Micah to understand the victory that will belong to them in the future. And the peace and the national life that will be reestablished. And here Micah takes up on what is written in 1 Kings 4 verse 25. I believe that's correct, isn't it? So Micah 4 verse 4, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, speaking of their future. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. And we won't have time to go in uh, into the, all the book of Micah here and show you that it represents a future restoration and blessings. Let's go back, if you will. Uh, well, I just will, while I've got it, give you the olive tree. We said there are three 
botanical emblems. And if I can turn to some of my references in Matthew 24, maybe I can get this for you. We said that the olive tree, the olive tree represents Israel's spiritual life. And there are many references to this, and you find them from the book of Psalms over completely till the book of Revelation we find. Let's look in uh, Psalm 52, verse 8. And I'll try to give you these as rapidly as I may be able to do it. Psalm 52, and verse 8. And we'll talk about, you know, the, the vine, I mean, the olive tree represents, the olive oil represents... Uh, if you remember anointing, there's anointing oil, and olive oil was used in that respect. And uh, there are various things that uh, relate to it, and we'll have to progress to get where we want to go with this. But he says in verse 8, Psalm 52, verse 8, and let's get all of them together before we make too many comments. He says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. In the house of God. The spiritual life we're talking about. He says, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. So I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. Now let me give you another reference. Look in the book of uh, uh, Jeremiah 11 verse 16. Jeremiah chapter 11 in verse 16. As I say, this was not planned for tonight, but since we started on it, let's be sure and get as much as we can. Jeremiah 11 in verse 16. The Lord called thy name a green olive tree. Fair and of goodly fruit, with the noise of a great tumult, he hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. Once a green olive tree, and now destined to be burned. There, this speaks of a condition in the Old Testament when Jeremiah was prophesying about that nation. So, even though they were the spiritual people he wanted them to be, they had committed such evil. In fact, if you look at the verse before that, it shows why that they were in such condition. Look at verse 15. You still have it? Isaiah, uh, I mean, Jeremiah 11, verse 16 we just read. Alright, drop back at one more verse in verse 15. What hath my beloved to do in mine house, seeing she hath wrought lewdness with many, and the, and the holy flesh is passed from thee? When thou dost evil, then thou rejoicest. And the Lord called thy name a green olive tree, and he tells why that they were broken and why this happened. Because they were supposed to be spiritual. Now, let's follow it on through. I want to give you some more references. Look in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 3 and 11 and 14. Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4. I believe I have it right. Chapter 4 and verse 3. Remember, there's two olive trees here. And he speaks of the oil coming out that, that supplies these lamps. This Zechariah chapter 4. Let's begin with verse 3. It says, And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl. This is the, what furnished the oil for the, for the uh, lamp, lamp stand. It says, And the two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side. And then he goes on down in verse 6. He says, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, this is the word of the Lord and his rubble saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. He's speaking with the spiritual aspect 
of the effect of these two olive trees. Drop on down to verse 11. And we have to do this in order to cover it. Verses 11 through 14. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? The question is asked. Notice. And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? The oil, symbolical of anointing. And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Now look, verse 14. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The two anointed ones. Look at Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And we want to give you something, and we'll have to close soon, but let me give you this. Revelation chapter 11. In verse 3 he says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses. uh, Revelation 11, verse 3. Did I give you the right reference? I did. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. Three and a half years. The last three and a half years of the tribulation. And then it says, uh, this is, by the way, the last half week of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Daniel's prophecy. It says, These are the two olive trees. These are the two olive trees. And the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And he goes on and describes more. But right here in Revelation, you find the fulfillment of that which is spoken of by Zechariah. And you find the spiritual life. In fact, you find these two prophets, these anointed ones, that come and prophesy in the book of Revelation, the 11th chapter. And we don't have time to expound this, but we'll find who they represent and what they have power to do. And it says, And if any man hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to... Who do these have power to do? These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Who, Who had the power in the Old Testament to shut heaven in the days of his prophecy? Elijah, wasn't it? All right. And have power over waters to turn them to blood. Who did that? Moses. Right? And to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, it doesn't mean that there will be a resurrection of Elijah and Moses. But it does mean that these two will have the same credentials as both Elijah and Moses. And some of you that have heard me teach the book of Revelation have found out that we referred to uh, Elijah and Moses here. As these two faithful witnesses are in the like spirit of Moses and Elijah. And the reason we do not demand that it be a resurrection and a reincarnation or a reappearance of Moses and Elijah is because at one time, Jesus, in referring to John the Baptist, says, this is Elijah which was for to come, if you can receive it. So that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Even in Christ's day, he was of the same spirit. And so, it does not demand, as some may believe, Elijah to appear and Moses to appear. But there's a lot of symbolical meaning, but let me close with this, and I, I wish I could get through all of it, but I won't have time. But we're talking about the olive branch representing the spiritual life. And let me, let me give you this, that we find that Moses is symbolical of those who died and are resurrected. And Elijah is symbolic of that rapture of the one that was taken up to heaven without dying. 
So you have both the dead in Christ and the living believers represented here. And we know that the two that appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 17 and in uh, Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9. Three places you find the Transfiguration. That there appeared with Him, not in Matthew uh, where He spake, but there was Moses and Elijah in every instance appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But one of them says, and I believe it's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, where he says, And they spake of His decease, Christ's decease, which He should accomplish at Jerusalem. So that these two appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Not Moses and Enoch, but Moses and Elijah. Not Enoch and Elijah, as some have said, but Moses and Elijah. And the rub they come up against with this thought is that the Bible says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. And they say because Moses died once, he couldn't be represented by those two witnesses because he would have to, to die again. But that Scripture in Hebrews 9 that we just mentioned does not say it's appointed unto man only once to die, but it's appointed unto man once to die. But it doesn't say only once. In fact, we know one that died more than that even in the days of Jesus. Because Lazarus was resurrected and we believe that he lived and became a witness during that time and that he uh, finally died a natural death or was taken off the scene in some way or another after that. I don't believe he's living today. So anyway, you have to take the Scripture serious. And in order to do that, you have to study it out. Thank all of you for your patience and kind attention. We'll try to get back to the book of Joel.